Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. All right, we've been talking the last couple weeks um, out of John chapter 14. I've gave you all reading assignments. Uh, so I've asked you all to read John chapter 14 through John chapter 17. How many, uh, how many good students do we have in the room? I knew Anne would be on. Would be, hey, we've got a few. All right. I'm going to invite you all up, and you're preaching this morning. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Surprise. All right. No, um, the, these, these chapters uh, have just really been speaking to me these past several weeks. Um, it all started with this idea of this word, from this word, perichoresis. So we've talked about this word uh, the last several weeks, perichoresis. And what perichoresis is, just as a little review, perichoresis is a Greek word that is actually not found in the Bible, it is, but it is a theological word in, this, in the sense that uh, the early church fathers, uh, used, when they were trying to describe what the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was, they looked at that and they used this term, perichoresis to describe that relationship. Now, what perichoresis was, is it's a compound word. Uh, it's, it's the word peri, which is the word for perimeter, or the idea is like a circle. Um, and then the second word is choresis, which is the word dance, or, or I'm sorry, which is actually the word choreography, or, or you know, so, so people take those two words, take the word perichoresis, and they call it the circle dance, and what the circle dance was, what perichoresis was, was a dance that the Greek culture would use in the, uh, back in the day. I don't think they do it much anymore because it's not on YouTube. So if it's not on YouTube, it's probably not done anymore. So actually, uh, I've asked a few people to come up uh, to, to choreograph a dance for us. So they're going to show you that here in a little bit. I'm just kidding. That'd be awesome, though. Maybe we should do that next week. Who volunteers to put together perichoresis dance for us? Ollie, I saw your hand. Jordan, I saw your hand. <laughs> Shelby, you're fanning yourself. That's a count. We just need three. There it is. <laughs> Holly, Jordan, and Shelby. Perfect. All right. So next week, they're doing the perichoresis dance up here for us. So, now, so the perichoresis dance, what, what they described it as is it, it was a dance usually involving three people. Sometimes it would be more. But usually it involved three people. And the dance, in the dance, they would weave in and out of each other. And uh, they did it so fluently and, uh, uh, and so quickly, the, the dance that would speed up over time, and it was so fluent and so quick that eventually it looked like it was one person dancing. It was one unit dancing together. And so when the early church fathers looked at that dance and saw the unity, saw the perfection of the dance, they looked at them and they said, there's, there's three individual people, but they're functioning so well that they look like one. And they said, that's what it looks like between the Father Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they are three distinctly different individuals, but they are so united as one that it is that it is as though they are one being, that their minds work perfectly in sync, their emotions are perfectly in sync, their movements, their thoughts, everything about them is so perfectly in sync that it is as though they are one. And so this is perichoresis, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus said that so many times. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In fact, he said, the Father is so in me that when you look at me, it is as though you have seen the Father himself. 
perfect unity. Perichoresis. Isn't that amazing? It's been absolutely revolutionizing the way I think about the Trinity, but not just the way I think about the Trinity, but the way that we are actually invited into that relationship. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going back into that because we're going to actually talk about it a little bit more today. But John, uh, John 14 through John 17, uh, several times it talks about, it says, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But then it goes on to say, and we are in you and you are in us. Man, if, you, if we can get a hold of this, this is one of the most revolutionary things, I believe, in our lives, if we can grab a hold of this, that not only are we sinners saved by grace, but we have been invited into the circle dance. We have been invited into the relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share with one another. That, that, though, that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, but they are in us and we are now in them. We can actually be in the circle dance with them. Hallelujah. That is so good that we are invited into the circle dance. So that's just a little bit of review of what we've been talking about. John chapter 14 through 17, let me give you a little context. I shared with you this last week, but I think it's important to understand this, that John chapter 14 through chapter 17 is actually what's happening in this moment in the, in the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples is what we are reading is, is what is going on around the table of the Last Supper, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give the account of Jesus instituting the Last Supper, but John takes it a step further and tells us what Jesus is discussing with the disciples. And what he's discussing is John chapter 14 through chapter 17. So, so by this point in time, by the time we get to John 14, uh, Judas has already left to portray Jesus. Jesus has already instituted the Lord's Supper and Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. So all of those very familiar stories have taken place and now they're left sitting around the table and Jesus begins telling them this idea of I am in the Father, the Father is in me and now we are in you and begins elaborating on all of that. I think that's important for a couple reasons. One, I just think it's interesting um, that Jesus uh, is talking to his disciples in this moment, and, and that it's the night before Jesus is actually crucified. So I think it's interesting because it's, it's like the last thing Jesus tells his disciples before he goes to the cross. That it's, it's, it's the last thing he tells his disciples before you go, he goes to the cross. You know, I remember um, back when Amber's grandfather, Paul's dad, was in the hospital and it was it looked like it was going to be his last night or maybe the last couple days that he had left. He did end up pulling through and lasting another few months, I believe. But I remember being in the hospital room and he's he's laying there. Phil Compton is laying there for those of you who who know him. Is was laying there in the hospital room and all of us are in there. And I remember him going around and speaking 
to almost each and every person there. And it was like he knew that this, this could be kind of this last moments that he had with his family. And he begins just speaking into each one because it was, again, he believed that this could be the last moments that I have. How many of you realize in the last moments some are, are some of the most um, profound and most important words somebody speaks? That it's, it's the last chance that I get to tell you something. So I'm going to make sure that it's of high value and importance. That John chapter 14 through John chapter 17 is the last time Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross. It actually says uh, in, in another book, um, I, I forget, I think it's in, in Luke. Jesus says that he realizes that his time has come. He realizes that Ju- it has already been put in Judas's heart to betray him. He realizes that the Father has already handed all authority over to him. And so the, Jesus knew that these were his last moments. And this is what Jesus decided to speak to the disciples, was this idea over and over again that I am in you and you are in me. It's this idea of perichoresis. So I think it's important that we pay attention. Amen? I think it's important that we pay attention to what he has to say. I'm going to go ahead and start now. That was all intro. You like uh, That's all review and intro. Let's get into the message now. John chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Pay attention to that verse there. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Savior or another helper, the Holy Spirit of truth, who will be to you a friend just like me. And he will never leave you and the world won't receive him because they can't see him or know him. But, be, but you know him intimately because he remains with you and will live where? Inside of you. So there again, all throughout this, these chapters is perichoresis. There it is again, that he, the Holy Spirit, will come and live inside of you. Ephesians 1, 13, I don't have it on the board. It just, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that upon our salvation, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, that he is the guarantee of our inheritance, that the Holy Spirit is actually the proof that we are sons and daughters of God and in line with the inheritance, that we are co-heirs with Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. So when you ask Jesus into your heart, right, when you Uh, confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And when you began living your life dedicated and surrendered to the Savior, it says that the Holy Spirit actually came at that moment to live inside of you, to live inside of you right now. So in this room, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, congratulations, the Holy Spirit is dwelling on the inside of you at this very moment. And here, but here's the deal. I'm afraid too many of us have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but we have no conversation with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's, we live as though we do not even realize that he is there. And some of us need to get good and familiar with the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Amen? 
listen, he is there. It, it, I love, uh, uh, man, I'm, I'm forgetting all my references this morning, but I love, it's, it's somewhere in the Bible, I promise. But it says, it says that, G, it says uh, the, what is it? The, man, I should have looked this up. It talks about the Father, Son, and Spirit. But at the end of the verse, it says, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was sent into the earth, and his job is to commune with us, to be with us, to relate to us. And so some of us have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, but we don't ever speak with him. We don't ever let him speak through us and to us. And some of us need to get familiar with the Spirit that lives inside of us. Amen? So I just want to encourage you all this morning, get familiar with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. So John, uh, where are we? See, verse, let's go ahead and read verse 18. It says, I promise that I will never leave you helpless or abandon you as orphans. I will come back to you. Soon I will leave this world and they will see me no longer. But you will see me because I will live again and you will come alive too. I love that verse. I'm not gonna preach on it, but man, isn't that good. That he comes alive, but we come alive too. Amen? So when the day, when that day comes, he's talking about uh, the resurrection. So when that day comes, you will know that I am living in the Father and that you are one with me, for I will be living in you. I think Jesus wanted us to get the idea of perichoresis, didn't he? My goodness, that I am living in the Father, that you are one with me, and that I will be living with you, that we shared this fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those who truly love me are those who obey my commands. Come on, doesn't that remind you of the very first verse we read? Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Then he says, those who truly love me are those who obey my commands. Whoever passionately loves me will be passionately loved by my Father. And I will passionately love you and return and will manifest my life within you. Amber asked me this this week as we were reading this. She says, she said, what in the world does the manifested life of God look like within us? The, the God who created everything, who is all powerful, who is peace himself, who is joy himself, what does his manifested life look like inside of us? And right here, it's a promise that when we passionately love him, that he will passionately love us and that he will manifest his life inside of us. It's a promise for each and every one of us that we actually are granted access into the life that Christ lives, the one who is perfect joy, the one who is perfect peace. Amen. Then one of the disciples named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, Lord, why is it you will only reveal your identity to us and not to everyone. And Jesus replied, loving me empowers you to obey my word. And the Father will love you so deeply that we will come to you and make you our dwelling place. Are you guys, are you guys hearing all of this? So beginning of the chapter, Jesus is saying, I'm going to live in you. 
And then, and we already read it today, he says the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell inside of you. And now he's saying that the Father is going to love you so much that we are going to come and make you our dwelling place. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this one chapter has been promised that they are going to come and to dwell inside of each and every one of us. That we share in the perichoresis, the circle dance with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? But those who don't love me will not obey my words. The Father did not send me to speak on my own revelation, but the words of my Father. I am telling you this while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Spirit of holiness, the one like me who sets you free, he will teach you all things in my name, and he will inspire you to remember every word that I've told you. I'm going to go ahead and stop right there this morning. All throughout that verse, again, Jesus is, these are the last words he is speaking to his disciples. And what he chooses to tell them is about this great mystery of I am in you and you are in me. But what I, I found interesting about this verse this week is three times within those few different verses, three different times, Jesus makes a statement like this. He says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. I believe it's verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23. I believe are the three different times that he shares that. Verse 21, verse, or verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23. Why does Jesus keep seemingly, it seems, seems, it seems random that he keeps saying this verse? Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 15, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it'll be done for you. Then he says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. And then he starts talking about, I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 21, he says, when that day comes, talking about the crucifixion when that or the resurrection, when that day comes, I will be living in you, you and me, and all of that. Then he says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. And then he says, whoever loves me will be loved by my father. Then in verse 23 is, is probably the most random because Judas asked Jesus, why is it that you are only telling us who you are and not the rest of the world? And Jesus gives this clear answer back to Judas. He says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe I'm missing something. It doesn't seem like it answers the question, right? So Jesus, three different times, and within that just short period of time, says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. What is Jesus trying to tell us? He's talking about perichoresis here. He's talking about I'm in you, you are in me. But then he makes this statement three times. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. And here's what I think Jesus is trying to tell us in these verses. Here's what I think he's trying to tell us. I think he's trying to tell us that perichoresis, love, unity, holiness, all of those things is not a reward for obedience. So you don't get perichoresis because you've been good enough. 
You don't get the, the relationship, the unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because you've done well enough, right? It's not a reward for obedience. Rather, obedience is the evidence that perichoresis is already taking place inside of you. That obedience is the evidence that love and unity are already happening inside of you. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Not, not if you obey my commands, then I will love you and come and manifest myself to you, but that instead loving me empowers you to obey my commands. That step number one is not getting your life in order. Step number one is falling in love with Jesus. Step number one is not getting everything perfect and everything lined up how it should be and making your life polished and neat. Step number one is realizing that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now quickening your mortal body and coming into the revelation that you now share perfect unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that revelation, out of that love and unity, that empowers you to live holy and to then obey his commands. I don't know about you, but I've wasted a lot of time trying to discipline myself into obedience. Trying to, trying to do everything perfectly right and live everything perfectly right by my own power so that I can live in unity with the Father. Or, or, or trying to polish my life up enough that I will be accepted by the beloved. And Jesus is telling us here in this moment that it's the opposite. It's the other way around. That discipline will not get you to holiness. That you cannot discipline yourself enough to get you into holiness. That holiness comes through love empowering you into obedience. That, that obedience, that holiness, that purity, that righteousness comes as a result of stepping into the revelation that I am in him and he is in me. Love empowers you to obey my commands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Let me show you what I mean even more so. Let's look here in 1 John 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, I believe is where, we're, or I'm sorry, verse 4 is where we're going to start. Listen, you cannot discipline yourself out of sin. You cannot discipline yourself out of sin. That it's through love that empowers you, that gives you the grace to come out of it. Amen? Let me show you what I mean here again. First John chapter three, starting in verse four. It says, anyone who indulges in sin lives in moral anarchy for the definition of sin is breaking God's law. And you know without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate sins and there is no sin in him. Listen to this. Anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. Anyone who continues to live in union with him, what does it say? Will not sin. 
but the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him by intimate experience. Man, that's a profound statement. It doesn't say if you know him, you will, you will more than likely not sin or you'll, you'll not sin as often. No, it says that when you are in perfect unity with the Father, that you will not sin. I don't know about you. I've shared this before. I've grown, I grew up thinking, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Therefore, I sin every day. And I, I remember as a kid, every night, I remember laying in bed, and I would be praying and I would, have to, I would ask for forgiveness for whatever sin I committed that day, right? I, I, w- I would try to think back through, did I sin today? Well, I did because I'm a sinner, right? So I sinned at some point in time today, and I, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I would just be like, God, whatever I did today, please forgive me, right? Whatever it is, I just ask for forgiveness. But here it says that if you live in unity with the Father, it says you will not sin. You will not sin. That I 100% believe with all of my heart that we can go a day, we can go two days, we can go a week. Mother Teresa went like a whole year without sinning, right? I don't believe that you are required to sin anymore. You have been set free from that enslavement. Sin is no longer your master. That if you are living in perfect unity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Bible actually says that you will not sin you will not. so i want to break that off of you right now in the name of jesus that you do not have a live to live in a lifestyle of sin you do not have to live in a constant this constant uh, um, cycle of sinning and asking for forgiveness and sinning and asking for forgiveness that you have been set free that slave that sin is no longer your master and that as you live in perfect unity with him that you actually have the power and the grace to not sin anymore Amen? Amen. Amen. That loving me empowers you to obey. Loving me empowers you to obey. Let's look at number or verse seven. It says, delightfully loved children, don't let anyone divert you from this truth. The person who keeps doing what is right proves that he is righteous before God. Not that you're righteous, and then you do right. It says that you um, that that the person who keeps doing what is right proves that he is righteous before God, even as the Messiah is righteous. But the one who indulges in a sinful life is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was revealed was to undo the and destroy the works of the devil. Listen, I can't read that verse without thinking of Rod Parsley, right? Rod Parsley, the word destroy there, it says to, it means to annihilate and to oblivion, to cause to cease to be as though it had never existed. That when Jesus came and manifested himself on the earth, it says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. That sin is destroyed. It's annihilated into oblivion to cause the cease to be as though it had never happened. Amen? Rod Parsley gets a lot more amens on that than I did. That's okay, though. <laughs> it's also because that word destroy is the word raise, 
R-A-Z-E. So he titles his message, Born to Raise Hell. So I don't know, <laughs> which is pretty awesome, right? <laughs> Born to Raise Hell. All right, I got sidetracked. Here we go. Back, let's get back on into the Bible here. So verse 19, or 9, it says, Everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains within him and he is unable to continue sinning because he has been fathered by God himself. Here is how God's children can be clearly distinguished from the children of the evil one. Anyone who does not demonstrate righteousness and show love to fellow believers is not living with God as his source. I want to go back up here to verse 9. Everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains within him. And he is unable to continue sinning because he has been fathered by God himself. That word seed there is this really embarrassing word called sperma. Now you can imagine what English word we get from that Hebrew word or Greek word, right? I'm not going to go into all those details, but it's the seed that literally what this verse is saying is that the very DNA of God is within us. The very DNA of the Father is within us. Guys, I've said this a thousand times. I keep saying it because I'm trying to convince myself that it's true as well. But that we are not figuratively his sons and daughters. But we are actually, literally his sons and his daughters. That his seed is inside of us. We carry the DNA of Father God himself inside of us. And that's why, why, that's why it, it, it's when Jesus says, when you look at me, you have seen the Father. But then it also says later on in John chapter 15 that, that when people, uh, well, it doesn't say this exactly, but it says that, uh, it talks about that when people see us, they should see the Father. Because his seed is literally inside of us. We carry the DNA of the Father himself, which is why, which is why when it says that when we live in perfect union with him, we will not sin because we carry the very attributes of the Holy One himself. That it is actually not our nature to sin. It is actually our nature to walk in in holiness because our DNA is not through Adam. Our DNA is through the Father. That your nature is no longer sinful. That your nature is actually to walk in holiness. Listen, I know Listen, I know that even as this revelation comes, some of you are thinking, well, I've fallen into sin still before. As a Christian, I've, I've still messed up. I've still sinned. But here's the difference. Before, it was like second nature. Now, when you fall into sin, it's like it feels so awkward. It feels so weird. It feels so foreign. There's this thing called conviction that comes in because it is not who you are. The reason it feels so weird to, to sin after you become saved is because it's no longer your nature to sin anymore. So you actually have to go against your own nature to sin. Your DNA says you are holy. 
Your DNA is actually to walk in obedience. And the closer we walk in love with the Father, the closer and the more often and the more, the, the, the more we'll walk in obedience and in holiness and righteousness. Amen? We have to come into unity. We have to come into unity. I want to tell this story. I've told it, I've told it before. I'm going to end with this story. It's a, it's a story that actually comes out of the book, Abba's Child, that I've referenced several times in the past. But the story goes like this. It's, it's about this Jewish family, this young Jewish family, um, this mom and dad and this little boy who is coming of age to become a man. And now in the Jewish culture, when you come to that age to become a man, you are sent off to go to the synagogue and begin learning about the Torah, begin learning about the Old Testament and the law and all of those things. So the little boy's birthday comes and he becomes of age and the day comes where he, his mom and his dad are sending him off to the synagogue to learn from the rabbis. And so they give him a hug, they give him a kiss, and they send him on his way to go and learn at the synagogue. When the boy comes home and walks through the door, the mom and dad meet him at the door, excited to see their son, to ask him how his day was. And they notice that the little boy, is his clothes are a little bit wet and dirty, and he has leaves in his hair. And so they ask him, like, what happened? Son, what happened? Did you make it to the synagogue? And, and the son looks at him and he goes, he said, no, I didn't, I didn't make it to the synagogue. I was walking to school and I saw this pond and this tree right by the pond and I couldn't help myself. So I went and I played in the tree and I swam in the pond. And the, and the dad looks at the son and, and he says, son, you, you can't do that. You have to go to the synagogue. You see, see in the Jewish culture, uh, that would be looked at as disobedience. It, the, to go to the synagogue was such a great honor that to not go would be looked down, at, would, be, would, be, um, would be dishonoring the, the synagogue. And so the, the father looked at him and said, son, you can't do that. You have to go and learn from the rabbis. And so... The son says, yes, dad, I'll, I'll make sure to do that tomorrow. So, so thinking that, they, that they've done the right thing here, they, the next morning the father and the mother kiss their son. They tell him to have a good day. They send him off to school. The little boy comes home. After the day is over, he's a little bit wet. He has some leaves in his hair. And the dad sees him and he's like, you didn't go to the synagogue again. He's like, no, dad, I'm sorry. I, I just got so distracted. I thought I had a little bit of time to play and, and the day just got away from me. And this time the dad got pretty upset. He got very frustrated because he knew that the neighbors, the, the other families around him would know what the son was doing. They would begin to recognize that the son is not going to the synagogue. And so he didn't want the disgrace to come upon his family. So this time he gets down in the son's face and he begins shouting at him, telling him he has to go and, uh, and, and really just forcefully tells the boy that if this happens again, there's going to be major, major consequences. Thinking that he finally got through to the son, they wake up the next morning, they kiss their son, they send him off to school thinking this time he's going to go to the synagogue. The day goes on, the little boy comes home, he's a little wet and dirty and has leaves in his hair. The father is furious at this point 
furious that the son is in disobedience. And so he hears that the great rabbi is coming into town. The head of the church is coming in to visit the synagogue. And the great rabbi is known to be a very hard, very strict, very disciplined man. And the father thinks, if I can't get through to my son, then I'll have to take him to the great rabbi. The father doesn't want to do so because he knows that the great rabbi is a very strict, very harsh man, but he wants his son to live up to his full potential. So him and his mother agreed that they need to take him to the great rabbi. So they walk into the synagogue. The father meets the great rabbi and tells him what has been happening, that the son has not been going to the school, not been going to the synagogue. He's been skipping and playing in the water and the trees and we just don't know what to do. And the great rabbi looks at the dad and says, leave him alone with me. So they go into the great rabbi's office, the son and the rabbi, and the father is waiting out in the foyer by himself. The father begins questioning whether or not he's done the right thing because he loves his son so much. He doesn't want to see his son broken. He doesn't want to see his son upset. And he begins pacing the floor, wondering whether or not he's done the right thing by giving his son over to the great rabbi. So not able to wait any longer, the father peeks his head in through the doors of the great rabbi's office. And what he sees shocks him. He expected to see the great rabbi scolding his son, but instead what he saw was the son sitting on the rabbi's lap and the rabbi holding the son against his chest and just hugging him and crying with him. The father leaves the room and he goes and just sits. A few minutes later, the boy and the rabbi come out And the rabbi looks at the dad and he says, I guarantee you, you will not have any more problems. The next morning comes. The little boy wakes up. The mom and dad give him a hug and a kiss and they send him off to school. This time, the little boy goes to the synagogue. He spends the day there learning about the Torah. Then on his way home, he gets in the tree and jumps in the lake, and then comes home. The point of the story is this. The point of the story is love empowers you to obey my commands. It's not the wrath of the Father. It's not disappointment from the Father. It's not, it's not the Father disciplining us that brings us into obedience. It's the love of the Father. It's hearing the Father's heartbeat. It's the Father holding us close and telling us that no matter what, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, that he's going to love us in all of it. And and in that love, it then empowers us to walk in holiness. It empowers us to walk in obedience. And what I want to say to you this morning is, Paul, would you mind coming up? What I want to say to you this morning is, is maybe, maybe you've been in a sin cycle yourself. Maybe there's been things that, that you've been doing and you've tried to stop, but
but you've been unable to be successful in that. And you found yourself in this roller coaster of up and down, up and down. I want to declare to you today that the Father loves you more than you could ever imagine. And I believe that this morning that you are going to encounter the love of the great rabbi. And that through that love, it will empower you to then walk in obedience. But it doesn't start with discipline. It starts with his love. It starts with his love. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Some of you have been trying to do this thing through discipline. And there's, there's definitely, there's obviously a place for having a disciplined life. But I want to tell you this morning that you will not get to holiness through discipline. You cannot get to the relationship with the Father through being good enough. You cannot get to a place of purity through obeying the rules. That the way to get to all of those things is through the love and the acceptance of the Father. What you don't need is another set of rules. What you need is an encounter with his love and a revelation of his love this morning. A revelation that you do not have to work to get into unity with the Father. That you do not have to get your life in order in order to walk in to the dance, to, in order to join in to the circle dance. That you are already invited as a son and the daughter to walk in that dance, to dance the circle dance with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That your invitation has already been given to you before you get it right, before you polish up your life, before you uh, stop doing whatever it is that you're doing, you have already been granted the invitation because the Father knows that that is by that invitation that you will then walk in purity and walk in holiness. That your DNA, the Father knows, the reason the love works is because he knows that it's actually your DNA to not sin. And that when you walk into the love of the Father and the acceptance of the Father, then you begin acting like the Father. You begin acting in the nature of what you've been designed to be, which is holy and righteous and pure. So I want to invite you today, this morning, into the circle dance. I want to invite you this morning onto the rabbi's lap where there is acceptance, where there is love, where there is perfect peace. Right now in this moment, wherever you are. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God did not wait for you to get right before he showed his love. But he loves you right now in this moment, in this day, no matter where you're at in your life. You are invited into the circle dance. I want to just take a few minutes this morning. Everybody going to just stand with me. I want to go ahead and just have a moment and invite if 
invite you to come forward if you um, if you feel like maybe you have been unable to get out of that cycle. And it may not even be sin. Maybe it's just a cycle of, of depression and anxiety and, and worry. Maybe it's just a cycle of not living into the manifest life of God. And maybe it is a sin cycle, whatever it may be. I want to invite you to come forward this morning as a, and, and the, the step forward is just a declaration that you're accepting the invitation into the circle dance. And I believe that when you come up to this altar this morning, that there is going to be a love that meets you that you have never experienced before in your life. That when you step into this altar, that there's going to be this overwhelming joy and peace and this feeling of acceptance that you are going to hear the words that you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I believe that you're going to encounter the love of God this morning. So if you need to encounter that love this morning, then I want to invite you to come forward. I want to invite you to go ahead and come up to this altar and just encounter that love of Jesus. Go ahead and do so right now as Paul begins to sing. this verse this morning. It's out of Romans chapter 8. It says, and you did not receive the spirit of religious duty leading you back into the fear of never being good enough, but you have received the spirit of full acceptance and folding you into the family of God. That you did not receive the spirit of religious duty leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. I don't know about you, but I've lived a lot of my life feeling like I've not been good enough. But the Father says that that's not the spirit that we receive, that we receive the spirit of full acceptance enfolding us into the family of God, that his love empowers us to obey. You have been invited into the circle dance. I just want to encourage you this week to take full advantage of that invitation. Take full advantage of the, the invitation to be in the Father and have the Father be in with you. Get familiar with the Spirit that dwells inside of you. Have a conversation with Him this week. Join in the circle dance because you have been accepted into the family. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you I thank you that we have not received the spirit of religious duty, duty leading us back into the fear of never being good enough, but we have received the spirit of full acceptance, the spirit of adoption, which makes us call out Abba, Father, that your DNA is inside of us, that we can share in the circle dance with the Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are image bearers of the Father himself. God, I pray, Lord, that we would all this week encounter your love every single day, God, and that it would be the fuel and the motivation for us to walk in full obedience to the Spirit. We love you so much this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.